This is Africa Digest. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we give you news from an African perspective, we are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also find us on channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spumelele Zond. I'm with Jolane Tulo, Amanda Machaka and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Vladimir Putin sworn in for another six-year term as Russian president. Boko Haram fighters leave scores dead after attacking villages in the far north region of Cameroon. In economics, Ugandan president directs government officials to sign off on a 2.3 billion US dollar Chinese loan for a new railway to curb further delays on the project. And in sport, SA Rugby welcomes successful achievement of its targets in the latest report on the Eminent Persons Group on Transformation in Sport. Jolana Tulo has a news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. Chairperson of South Africa's National Council of Provinces, Tandi Mudise, has called on the Pan-African Parliament to consider allocating the body's president on a rotational basis, as is the case within the African Union. Mudise, who was sworn in as a member of the PAP earlier in the day, says South Africa will not offer a candidate for president of the continental body during the current two-week ordinary session. We do believe that this parliament is supposed to actually have the presidency on a rotational basis like they do at the AU. This, we think, is long overdue for the Southern African region, and that is why South Africa will back a candidate from SADC to take over the presidency of the Pan-African Parliament. The fact that we do not take presidency does not mean South Africa will never take it. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali has met Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta in Kenya's capital Nairobi. The two leaders discussed bilateral relations between their nations. They also discussed northeast African regional issues including peace efforts in South Sudan and Somalia. Sarah Kimani reports. This is the Prime Minister's third foreign visit since he took office in February this year. The two nations are involved in peace efforts in neighboring South Sudan and Somalia. The leaders agreed to continue pushing for a lasting solution to the two conflicts. They also discussed ways of boosting trade relations between them. Calls have been made to prevent child sexual exploitation against the background of travel and tourism, especially in Africa. Delegates were speaking at the Africa Conference on Child Protection and Travel and Tourism being held in Durban in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. The conference is being held ahead of Africa's biggest travel conference, Tourism Indaba, which kicks off on Tuesday. A research study has been presented which shows that sexual exploitation of children, while found worldwide, is increasing in Africa. A two-day conference has started in the Somali capital Mogadishu, focusing on the environmental damage caused by charcoal production. The production is helping funding the conflict in Somalia. The BBC's Will Ross has the details. It's estimated that every 30 seconds a tree is cut down in Somalia to make charcoal. 
Whether it's used to cook food at home or to smoke flavoured tobacco in shisha pipes across the Middle East, the production is unsustainable. Less trees in Somalia leaves land more susceptible to drought and floods. The UN estimates that at times exports have been worth more than $100 million a year, and some of that profit goes to the militant group Al-Shabaab. And finally, India's Supreme Court has ordered the trial of eight men accused of raping and murdering an eight-year-old girl to be moved from Jammu and Kashmir state in neighboring Punjab. The incident triggered mass protests in the country and has created communal divisions in the area where the girl was attacked. The BBC's Yogita Lameya reports. The Supreme Court was hearing a petition filed by the family of the victim, who wanted the trial to be moved away from Jammu and Kashmir, fearing the case would not be heard properly in a communally charged atmosphere. The trial will now be held in the city of Pathankot in the neighboring state of Punjab. The girl belonged to a Muslim nomadic tribe and police say she was gang-raped, drugged and killed by a group of Hindus who wanted her community to move off their land. For Channel Africa, I'm Jalani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Alain. It is 17.05 Central African Time. Remember that you can also stream us. We are on channelafrica.co.za. Send us emails as well on info at channelafrica.co.za. Vladimir Putin was sworn in for another six years as Russian president. His inauguration comes two months after more than 70% of voters backed him in a presidential election in which he had no serious contenders. Thousands of Russians took to the streets over the weekend to protest his inauguration in 19 cities across the country and some of them are in detention after they were arrested. Channel Africa's Kumbero Mujerere spoke to Professor Vladimir Shubin from the Institute for African Studies of the Russian Academy of Social Sciences about what to expect from Putin's fourth term. I think it's just to divert the attention from the main point. And the main point is that Russian, the majority of Russians, over 75%, supported, uh, voted for Putin during the last election. That's the most important point. And really, he has a mandate from the Russia, Russian people to move the country forward. Now, what did he have to say in his inauguration speech, uh, Prof? Uh, he discussed several points. I think the most important was, of course, the need for further breakthrough, as he mentioned, of our country, because the development, the economic development in the recent years was not as good as we wanted to be, partly because of the hostile attitude of certain Western countries which create problems for our economy, but we still manage and we over, definitely overcome most of those difficulties. And the second point, he said, we should defend our country. We have enough uh, strength to, to, to do it. That's also important because of the threats from certain Western forces, as you know. And what is the situation with regards to those who have been arrested over the weekend? Are they still in detention? Look, why are we concentrating on it? very strange approach. I have to tell you that unfortunately, during the recent period, there was a lot of anti-Russian propaganda, very dirty one, in, in South African media. I hope you will not join them. But what I heard in the, the news, I think most of them have been, of course, already released, you see. Some those who resisted the police would be charged. That's normal procedure. Usually it's administrative uh, 
court, not a real criminal court. But I once again don't concentrate on it. You are full of the worst example of our friends in inverted commas in the West. We understand, Prof, that about six African heads of state uh, uh, also attended the inauguration. Do you think this speaks to the cozy relationship uh, that Russia enjoys with Africa? Yes, this is one of it. As you know, the Russia has uh, uh, good relations, has diplomatic relations with each and every African state. And moreover, we can say that no African state joined this vicious campaign unleashed by uh, Mrs. Theresa May, you know, when they started recording or expelling some Russian diplomats from their countries. Moreover, as you know, in July, the summit of BRICS will take place in Johannesburg, and that will be the third opportunity for uh, President Putin to visit a beautiful country. How would you describe the mood in Moscow, Prof, at the moment after the swearing-in of President Putin? A sense of optimism, do you think? Definitely, definitely, and the sun is shining, by the way. That's Professor Vladimir Shubin from the Institute for African Studies of the Russian Academy of Social Sciences on the line from Moscow in Russia in conversation there with Kumbero Munjarere. A Democratic Republic of Congo political platform supporting Moses Katumbi has denounced intimidation strategies aimed at discouraging supporters of the opposition leader. The platform, well known as Ensemble, emphasized that Moses Katumbi will be in the Democratic Republic of Congo to hand his candidacy. On the other side, the ruling majority said only Congolese will compete in the upcoming elections. Jean-Noël Bamwenzi reports from Kinshasa. The platform Ensemble pour le Changement, meaning Together for Change, believes the Congolese government is using intimidation strategies to try and discourage supporters of Moses Katumbi. The former governor of the mineral-rich province of Katanga in the southeastern Democratic Republic of Congo is living in exile in Europe after he announced that he will be competing for the presidential position as elections are expected here next December. Since then, Moses Katumbi has been charged for trying to use mercenaries in this country. He has also been sentenced for real estate and now the big challenge for him is that he is accused of having an Italian citizenship while the DRC constitution doesn't allow Congolese to have another country's citizenship. And according to the Ensemble platform, the government is now using intimidation strategies against the Katumbi's supporters, but all this won't stop him to come here and hand his candidacy in July. Gabriel Kyungu Wakumwaza is a senior executive of the Ensemble platform. They want to intimidate by all means all people supporting Moses Katumbi. It's horrible, the intimidation strategy, but we repeat it. They want it or not, Moses Katumbi is coming here in Congo. Most of observers here believe chances are decreasing for Moses Katumbi to be allowed to come and hand his candidacy to the Independent National Electoral Commission unless he would be able to fix his citizenship problem on time. But really, this looks very difficult, if not impossible. The opposition supporters are then pointing fingers to the ruling coalition to use this citizenship issue in order to try and take any stronger opponent from the competition. But this is being rejected by the ruling majority. Claude Mashala is the National Secretary of the P 
People's Party for Reconstruction and Democracy, the PPRD, that's President Joseph Kabila's political party. Those who are talking like this are just willing to put some trouble in uh, a people's mind. I think two or three months ago, there is a deputy uh, premier minister in Australia who has the same problem because he has been discovered that uh, this man has another nationality. He has been uh, moved out from the government. It's not only uh, something specific to DRC. Meanwhile, this senior executive of the ruling coalition has revealed to Channel Africa they are now willing to change the constitution in order to allow even those with more than one citizenship to be participating to this country's development. Once more, Claude Mashala explains. We are willing now to change. It's not f only for those elections, even in the future. If this could be done, Actually, uh, this change could be done now. This could um, give enough opportunity to all those who have uh, two or three citizenship to come and uh, also candidate. Why not? That is why we still are supporting uh, that uh, willing of uh, seeing tomorrow our country having another constitution which is going to be more more inclusive. Moses Katumbi has been sentenced for three years in jail after he was allowed to leave the country for health reasons. He went to exile in Europe and then he still wanted here in the DRC. And indeed, the Congolese Minister of Justice, Alexi Tambwemwamba, has put it clear Moses Katumbi has to save his penalty. Tambwemwamba emphasized, should Katumbi try to show himself on the DRC territory, he will then be arrested immediately and taken to jail. But Katumbi's lawyers and most of analysts here are looking at all these judicial problems targeting Katumbi as a simple political strategy aiming to get rid of him before the upcoming presidential elections. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. You help and party. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of This is Africa Digest.
1715 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. The threat of mainstream media by global technological giants including Google and Facebook is being discussed at the World Media Economics and Management Conference in Cape Town. Themed media management in the age of tech giants collaboration or co-opetition. The conference seeks to interrogate the business management and leadership strategies, tactics and policies of the current media industry in Africa and globally to gorge their relevance and effectiveness in an age where international digital media conglomerates are increasingly displacing traditional media in the creation, value addition and dissemination of media content to audiences. Here's the conference director Francis Ndongwa. The conference basically is looking at a rapidly changing media environment where we are having global technological companies such as Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple, they are entering the main media stream to offer news and other content to audiences around the world. What is happening is that they are taking away these audiences from mainstream media. And subsequently, they are also taking away the advertising of these mainstream media companies, leading to an existential threat in terms of uh, how media companies will survive financially. This is what it is looking at and is trying to find solutions in terms of how media companies can be financed these days when, one, uh, the, the global uh, technological giants are offering free news as well as social media as well. They're offering free news. So how can you sustain quality, credible journalism? So that is what this conference is about. And obvious Facebook and Twitter, they have been in the making for quite a long time and now they've gained traction. But in terms of um, media, would you say that you neglected to look at this part when there was a lot of um, interest from people surrounding this type of media? No, indeed, it is absolutely correct what you are stating. The mainstream media itself has for too long underestimated the influence and impact of technological giants such as Google, such as Facebook, as they amazed the great numbers of people who have formed huge social networks. And in the days in which we live now today, the value of... uh, in terms of a network is really the greater the numbers of people that greater the value of that network because it means you can share your information, you can communicate, you can engage with more people. Indeed, so the media has been remiss in terms of not taking these changes into account and rapidly enough, that's the first one. Secondly, the media itself has failed to come up with innovative steps which are needed to exist in a rapidly world which continues to change, you know, virtually every day. And so what do you hope to achieve? Because now, more than ever, the mainstream media is under threat. How will you get the solutions, the tangible solutions that you hope to have during this conference because you are under pressure now? The issue really is that every two years when this conference has been running across different continents and so on, each conference focuses on a particular theme. 
It's not that each conference is focusing on a similar subject. This one is the one which is focusing on what is clearly emerging as an existential threat to the sustainability of media companies because of the activities of this platform uh, economy companies. I mean Google, I mean Facebook, I mean uh, uh, all of these. So this particular conference is focusing on that because really unless something is done and done quickly and radical steps are also taken in terms of curbing the fake news which these uh, uh, platform media companies are spewing as you saw in the US election in 2016 and indeed in the most recent case of Cambridge Analytica which was abusing uh, more than 50 million uh, accounts of Facebook people in the US in order to promote Donald Trump and so on so that he wins the election. So what we are saying is this particular conference is looking at a particular problem which is existing at this particular time. Previous conferences have looked at different issues which were uh, important at the particular time. Now, in terms of the conference, what are some of the topics that you are discussing that you hope will actually address this issue? Well, these practical steps really will come out of this conference first through robust research which is being carried out by really top and world-leading media economists, media management experts, and so on. They'll come up with well-researched solutions in terms of how mainstream media can survive in this kind of discontinuous environment. So that is quite clear. That's one thing. But secondly, there will be obviously further look ahead in terms of what the media itself should do. Indeed, an examination also of the failures of media and how these can be remedied. So that's really what we're looking at here. And we hope that to this conference will result in media companies all over the world, including those in Africa, taking concrete workable steps which will ensure that they can not only survive sustainably, but they will be able to support quality, credible and independent journalism so that the world is better informed. Not the situation you are currently having where in fact you are having uh, Facebook, Google and others being accused, for example, of fanning fake news, like as I was referring to earlier on. I mean, they are accused of failing to take a social, social responsibility to ensure that they don't allow fake news to appear as if it is news. So really, these are some of the steps which we hope this conference will take. That Francis Njongwa, director of the World Media Economics and Management Conference underway in Cape Town in South Africa, talking to Tuto Ngobeni there. Now, Boko Haram fighters have attacked villages in the far north region of Cameroon, leaving at least a dozen dead. Several soldiers wounded and the villages torched in a large operation involving hundreds of attackers, some of whom used villagers as human shields. Mokikinzeka reports from northern Cameroon. Children gathered in little groups along the road shout to welcome the Cameroon military in Mabanda, a northern village on the border with Nigeria. 43-year-old village elder Alihu Idrisu says groups of fighters infiltrated the faithful praying in mosques and sellers and buyers on their market day Wednesday. L'air de la prière, ils sont au niveau de la mosquée. Dans la mosquée, ils étaient au nombre de huit. 
He says one group of eight armed men invaded the mosque while they were praying and ordered the imam and all Muslims present to lead them to a nearby Cameroon military post. He says those who objected were killed. Idrisu says the militants operated for over two hours and killed at least 14 villagers whom they accused of failing to inform Boko Haram when Cameroon army arrived in their village ahead of raids on the insurgents' strongholds in the Sambisa forest last month. Jean-Pierre Ndanga, a Cameroon military officer in Mabanda, says they found it extremely difficult to fight back because the invaders were using villagers as human shields. Nous sommes arrivés à la localité de Mabanda où on a retrouvé les he says when he ordered his troops to get down from their military jeep and move towards hundreds of villagers they saw marching towards the Mabanda village square, they suddenly heard gunshots and immediately understood that Boko Haram fighters were using the people as shields. He says he and many of the troops were wounded as they struggled to retreat to protect the villagers. Jean-Pierre was rushed to the Mabanda Health Center alongside dozens of injured military and villagers. Laboratory technician Diodoné Besson says they attended to all of the wounded without discrimination. He says many villagers had their lives saved thanks to the immediate intervention of health workers. He says four seriously wounded villagers were given the same surgical treatment as wounded military men. Cameroon's military says the militants fled to neighboring Nigeria after the attack, but at least seven of the insurgents were killed. Cameroon's semi-arid far north region has been a target of Boko Haram suicide bombings and raids for close to nine years as the Islamist insurgency spilled over the border from Nigeria, killing at least 25,000 in the Lake Chad Basin shared by Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad and Niger. The UN Refugee Agency estimates approximately 26 million people in the Lake Chad region have been affected by the Boko Haram violence and more than 2.6 million displaced. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in northern Cameroon. According to the International Committee of Red Cross ICRC, communal violence has intensified in Mali with recent clashes in the region of Menaka along the Mali-Niger border, leaving dozens of civilians dead. Clashes between communities are frequent in the region, especially at the time of the year that we're in at the moment, when the unpredictable weather makes getting enough water for people and decent grazing for their livestock difficult. The ICRC's Jean Yves Clemenzo says the situation is quite alarming this year. We have teams working not far from there telling us that unfortunately the level of violence is, is very high this year and we call all the parties to uh, spare uh, the, the population there. 
And in terms of the ICRC, how is the organization responding? I understand that um, these kind of clashes often occur in the region, especially around this time of the year. Yes, we, we try to do our best, but it, it's a remote region. And we work on both sides, on both countries, in Niger and Mali. In Niger, we try to improve the access to healthcare. We are supporting healthcare facilities to try to provide services for over uh, 100,000 people to improve also access to water. And in Mali now we are trying to analyze the situation. We have a, a colleague in the field in Menaka to see if there is a need to increase our, our response. Can we reflect a little bit on what sparks these kind of clashes? I understand people are fighting over resources in the region. Yes, it's quite complex because every year you have at this time of the year when the the, the resources are, are more scarce and the weather, the temperature is high, less access to water. So communities usually uh, struggle to get access to water for, for their animals. And this is a kind of chronic problem. But on the top of that, uh, you have also in Mali an armed conflict. So you have also consequences. And the situation is really uh, alarming this year. And, and we saw really uh, more people killed among communities, even some uh, bodies not yet buried. And we call all the parties uh, there in the field, in the region, uh, in the, this area between Niger and Mali, to restrain from attacking communities, not taking part into violence, and also the national authorities, international community, really to do its best to influence those who can really spare life of people. Jean-Yves Clemenzo is communications manager for the International Committee of the Red Cross on the line from Dakar in Senegal. I'm Joachim Bulli, the People's Poet in South Africa. You are listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Catch me, all social networks, Joachim Bulli. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It is now 17.30 Central African time. It's time for your news headlines. Here's Chola Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, Chairperson of South Africa's National Council, Council of Provinces, Tandi Mudise, has called on the Pan-African Parliament, or PAP, to consider allocating the body's president on a rotational basis, as is the case within the African Union. A two-day conference has started in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, focusing on the environmental damage caused by charcoal production. And finally, India's Supreme Court has ordered the trial of eight men accused of raping and murdering an eight-year-old girl to be moved from Jammu and Kashmir state to neighboring Punjab. For Channel Africa, I'm Jorani Tulo. This is Africa Digest.
Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Let's go to Angola now where President João Lourenço has been quoted in the media saying his country would soon relaunch fishing and agriculture and open the country to foreign investment. His government is seeking to increase the annual fish catch by 16% over the next four years to 614,000 tons. Meanwhile, it is aiming for a 50% increase in fish meal production to 30,000 tons over the same period. To demonstrate his commitment, Lorenzo has visited fish factories and promised to help with resources. He's also said that a Agriculture would also be revisited or revitalized rather to help us analyze. We spoke to Dr. Alex Vines, the head of Africa program at Chatham House in London. We also spoke to Ross Harvey, a senior researcher under the governance of Africa's resources program at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Angola is one of the most uh, oil-dependent economies in the world. 95% of its foreign exchange earnings are based on oil. And um, oil is a depleting resource. Uh, Angola has been in economic crisis for a number of years also because of the decline of international oil prices. So Mr. Lorenzo basically had no choice after he was elected last August to focus on diversifying the economy away from oil. And uh, fisheries and agriculture are two big areas that I do believe that he's correct that uh, he can diversify the economy. But that's not going to happen in a hurry. Um, So he's also trying to encourage investment in the oil industry still, because if you look at the figures for oil production in Angola, they will peak Uh, in the next year, and then they will go into a significant decline. Uh, And uh, Mr. Lorenzo will need decades of of, of time to really diversify the economy. So he needs two things, a robust oil industry in the short term and real diversification into fisheries, agriculture, tourism, and other things. Let me bring you in here, uh, Ross. Tell us about the findings of your research that you have done into fishing in Angola. The research that the Institute has done, uh, not myself, but my program head, uh, Mr. Alex Benkenstein, is in fact uh, Mozambique and Namibia orientated. Uh, But the the general findings regarding fisheries on the continent as a whole is that they have a massive first sale value, uh, but a large proportion of that revenue ends up not uh, accruing to the local communities that are uh, most affected. And in fact, uh, Lorenzo's plans for uh, diversification of the Angolan economy uh, are largely oriented around fish processing. Uh, and it is clear from our research that any kind of value addition to the raw material uh, is likely to be beneficial, provided you have the relevant 
uh, institutional context to make that a reality, provided that you have some kind of comparative advantage. Uh, and as Dr. Vines rightly mentioned, you know, having a, a long coastline and a particularly productive fishery that hasn't been overexploited for all kinds of historic reasons means that from a natural resource endowment perspective, uh, certainly Angola is well positioned. From an institutional perspective, uh, it's less clear that they are in a, a good position to uh, exploit the, the resource endowment. Uh, it's also unclear that they uh, have the necessary physical and human infrastructure with which to uh, ensure that value addition and fish processing, particularly for fish oil, to supply uh, to uh, especially Western markets. Uh, that is lacking, and that is something that, you know, as Dr. Vines rightly mentioned, is going to take many, many years. And you do need a strong oil industry uh, in the short run to ensure kind of, some kind of revenue distribution to, to put you in a position to take future advantage uh, of your fish endowment. Now, the anti-graft drive campaign, uh, Dr. Vines, uh, has seen a scores of uh, functionaries and heads of state enterprises uh, being uh, dismissed. Uh, do you think this is a flesh in the pan uh, kind of exercise on the part of the president, or does it represent uh, the wholesale change uh, that Angolans have been looking for? Well, I, I do not believe it's wholesale change at all, no. But uh, what I do believe is that um, uh, rent-seeking had got so pervasive and damaging for the Angolan economy that when Israel Lorenzo became president, he realized that he would have to counter some of this. So uh, a gentlemanly agreement that he had made with the previous president and his own instinct, which would have been to push for gradual change, so move against some of this graft gently, he had no choice because mm. Angola had run out of money. It was in deep economic crisis. There was no international business confidence. And that has forced his hand to be much more robust, much more quickly. And that's what we're seeing, which is why there was this move against the, 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 the daughter of the former president as head of the uh, state oil company, Somangol. Why Dos Santos' son, uh, Zeno uh, Filomeno uh, Dos Santos, was moved from the Sovereign Wealth Fund and so on. And uh, that's got to be positive for Angola if uh, more technocratic, less politically connected people are able to be given the space to uh, professionalize and institutionalize uh, Angola's economy. We'll see. I think there'll be some areas that will improve and there are signs already that there is more investment coming into the oil industry again, there are others that might be just old-style patronage-based, and we'll, 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 over time we'll see that. But so far, I think it's certainly welcome that there is more opening up of the Angolan economy. Dr. Alex Vines is the head of the Africa program at Chatham House in London and Ross Harvey is a senior researcher under the governance of Africa's resources program at the South African Institute of International Affairs talking to Kumbero Jarele. 
The World Meteorological Organization is hosting a global conference on hydrological services to address the urgent need to improve forecasting, management, and the utilization of water resources in an era of growing water stress, pollution, and hazards like floods. Claire Nallis, media officer at the World Meteorological Organization, says the meeting brings together providers and users of hydrological services to strengthen knowledge sharing and coordination among all water stakeholders and its aim is to establish a more coordinated platform to inform the international agenda on sustainable development, disaster risk reduction and climate change. The World Meteorological Organization is organizing a global conference on hydrological services. It is taking place this week. It lasts for three days. The reason we're organizing it is because there is an urgent need to improve forecasting management and utilization of water resources. We live in an era of growing water stress, as the South African city of Cape Town can obviously testify. But we're also facing increasing problems from pollution as well as the ever-present hazards such as floods. What could be said about the need for this improvement on forecasting? We need better forecasting of hydrological hazards and in order to do this we need to do much more in the way of data sharing. There's an expression which you know is quite often used in business circles and that expression is what we cannot manage what we do not measure and that certainly applies to hydrology. You know we need to do much more to share our data, to pool our expertise and our technology, just really to establish you know, how much water we do have. Are we making progress in as far as this improvement in forecasting is concerned? Not enough. We need to make more progress, and, and that is obviously one of the reasons that we're holding this conference. It's to bring you know, different parties, different institutions, uh, many, many, many different countries together you know, to, to try to brainstorm and find the most effective way forward. And uh, talking about the issue of management and utilization of water resources, what could be said about that from the World Meteorological Organization's perspective? The World Meteorological Organization, we're actually involved in a number of initiatives to try to improve the management and use of water resources. One of them is called Hydro Hub, and that's a new initiative. It's supported by Switzerland, and this aims to support what we call hydrometry on the ground and try to improve and innovate in operational solutions. Another initiative that we've got going, it's called Hydro SOS, and that stands for Hydrological Status and Outlook System. And that aims to build a network to assess the current status of its surface and groundwater hydrological systems and to predict how they will change in the future, given that you know the future will very much be influenced by climate change. The World Meteorological Organization, we've also got fairly well-established programs now, both for integrated flood management. You know, we accept that a fairly 
large number of people around the world live in floodplains. They do this because the ground is fertile, they can grow their crops, but it also means that you know, there are risks of flooding. So what we say on that is, you know, we don't want to stop people living in, in floodplains, but we need to make sure that they're aware of the risks and that they can manage those risks. Now, the opposite end of the scale is drought. And so WMO has an integrated drought management program, which we operate in conjunction with the global water program. And that also is to try to be a little bit more proactive on, on drought. I mean, quite often we only realize and take action on drought when the drought is already quite advanced. Um, so by our integrated drought management program, we're saying, you know, you should be aware and start taking action before the drought, you know, really starts to bite. Given this era of growing water stress, as you mentioned, and uh, the heightening of pollution, is this uh, meeting going to be able to deal with uh, such situation that solutions could be found with regards to that? The meeting, it certainly won't find a solution to the problem of pollution. I mean, this is a huge, huge long-term problem. So, you know, unfortunately, we don't have any quick fixes to that. But, you know, we do need to find solutions to an increased awareness of water stress. And to go back to what I said earlier on, we cannot manage what we do not measure. So, you know, really the, the starting point is just to do more on data sharing and to improve our measurement of hydrological resources, of water resources, and then to use that as a building brick to improve the management of them. That is clear. Now, Liz Claire is the media officer at the World Meteorological Organization, and uh, she was in conversation there with Wandile Kalipa. It is now 17.45 Central African time. Here's Amanda Machaka. She has your economics news. Thank you, Spamelele. Good evening. KPMG's Scandal Heat South African Arm has welcomed a review of its turnaround strategy by the Independent Regulatory Board for Auditors, saying its failings led to a negative image of auditors. The global auditor has been under scrutiny since 2017 over work done for a company owned by the Gupta family and more recently for small lender VBS Mutual Bank. The Guptas are accused of using their links to former President Jacob Zuma to influence government decisions and the award of tenders. Both the family and Zuma deny wrongdoing. The IRBA said on Friday it had taken the unusual step of appointing a specialized team to review KPMG's turnaround strategy starting this week. China has tried to strike a positive tone after United States President Donald Trump's trade negotiators left Beijing on Friday with no public sign of an agreement. State media over the weekend offered a somewhat positive assessment of the U.S. trade talks, urging more negotiations while saying the Americans should be rational and pragmatic. 
Reports say that in a move that would meet some U.S. demands, the Commerce Ministry is studying measures to further lower import tariffs on some food, pharmaceuticals and medical instruments. China is scheduled to report the April trade data on Tuesday. Possible U.S. trade measures may impact Chinese exports later this year. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has directed government officials to sign off on a 2.3 billion US dollar Chinese loan for a new railway by September to curb further delays on the project. He asked for more flexibility in negotiating with the Export Import Bank of China without necessarily compromising the project. This, according to a statement by Works Minister of State Katumba Wamala on the Parliament's website. Uganda has failed to secure the finances since 2015 following differing outcomes of feasibility studies done by the two parties. Landlocked Uganda plans a 273-kilometer line from the Kenyan border town of Malaba to the capital Kampala. It has already acquired land for a 100-kilometer stretch and plans to borrow 85% of the planned cost from the Chinese lender. Aspen Pharmacare has opened a containment facility at its Port Elizabeth plant in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. The 80 million US dollars facility is said to create about 500 jobs. The company currently has 2,000 employees at the plant and 90% of these employees are from the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro. The company is also in the process of establishing training academy to empower its employees with accredited qualification in pharmaceutical manufacture. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis, who opened the facility, has emphasized the importance of companies to reinvest in the country all the way to Hesmo. The high containment facility is set to create about 500 jobs in the Nelson Mandela Bay area. The company currently has 2,000 employees at the Port Elizabeth plant, and 90% of these employees are from the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro. The company is also in the process of establishing a training academy to empower its employees with accredited qualifications in pharmaceutical manufacture. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis, who opened the facility, has emphasized the importance of companies to continue investing in the country. And First National Bank has become the first bank in South Africa to introduce a mini ATM that uses biometrics as a means of validation for consumers. The device functions as a self-service kiosk from which customers can make withdrawals, transfers and payments, view statements, purchase airtime and electricity, and perform card cancellations. FNB says the touchpoint validates a customer's identity by scanning a fingerprint placed on the biometric reader and it can detect false fingerprints to prevent fraud. The bank says the device had been successfully piloted in piloted in Gauteng province since November 2017 and it aims to place the devices in branches, community retailers, in townships and rural areas across South Africa. Now, financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 9.77 Botswana Pula and 10.03 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is at 3.52 Brazilian Heyal, at 62.56 Russian Ruble, at 66.68 Indian Rupee, at 6.35 Chinese Yuan, and at 12.48 the South African Rand. It is uh, trading at 73 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,313 and platinum at $914 an ounce, while the price of print crude oil is at $75.53 a barrel. That's the latest business news.
Thanks very much, Amanda. Your sports news now. Here's Musabiri Makura. Good evening, sports fans. SA Rugby has welcomed its successful achievement of its targets in the latest report of the Eminent Persons Group on Transformation and Sport released in Pretoria earlier today. Now, rugby showed a 17% improvement to achieve 60% of the targets agreed with the Department of Sport and Recreation South Africa, as well as the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee. Now, the EPG sets a minimum target of 50% achieved as the measure of a successful compliance. Rue says the report highlighted that the greatest challenge to South African sports, rugby included, was the state of school sport. Meanwhile, junior Springbok coach Shen Ru has made six changes to his starting team to face Wales at Cardiff Arms Park on Tuesday, most of which were rotational as he looks to ensure that the players get the necessary game time before the World Cup, uh, rather the World um, Rugby Under-20 Championship. Now the team features a new centre pairing of Manuel Russ and Lyle Hendricks while scrum half Zach Berger will join forces with Lubaba Lo Dobella at halfback in the three changes to the backline. We're trying to give everybody in the squad an opportunity to play on tour. I think that was the purpose right from the start. So it's a rotational system that we're following and, and you know, hopefully they can prove their worth. While Rue say he ex- um, rather says he expects a testing encounter against Wales kickoff for that match is at 3 p.m. Central African time. The Junior Springboks will then meet England in their final UK tour match on Friday at the Six Wales Stadium in Forchester. Looking at the games, I think they play a fast game, fast-paced game. I think they um, have got a good set piece, and you know we need to be up, up the tempo and, and, and try and keep up with them. And, and obviously when we've got the ball, we need to keep it and, and make sure that we staff them off um, any position. On to football news, legendary former Manchester United manager Alex Ferguson remains in intensive care at Salford Royal Hospital following a brain hemorrhage he suffered on Saturday night. The 76-year-old former Red Devils boss was taken ill at home last weekend and was taken to the facility for emergency treatment. Now, while authorities are understandably being cautious about revealing too many details around his condition following surgery to fix the problem, it appears Updates on his situation will be slow in revealing too much information. And finally, tennis news. Croatia's Marin Klilic dropped a place to fifth in the latest ATP rankings released earlier today after making an early exit from last week's Istanbul tournament. Now, former U.S. Open champion Klilic, who lost in both last year's Wimbledon final as well as January's Australian Open final to Roger Federer, was bounded out by unseeded Tunisian Malik Jaziri after receiving a bye into the second round. Now, Bulgarian Kigro Dimitrova took fourth spot despite not having played with Spain's Rafael Nadal still topping the rankings. Well, there's Zaya Sports News at the Sour. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest.
1754 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. Vladimir Putin has been sworn in for another six-year term as Russian president. Boko Haram fighters leave scores dead after attacking villages in the far north region of Cameroon. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producers Fiso Machiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. Send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za on SMS. We are on plus 27763003327. Tweet us on channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Ungoa Mibai Semito.